At the end of the World War, Second World War, the world had seen the atrocities of Nazi Germany. The ghettos, concentration camps, mass murder. What they witnessed as images of well-dressed, educated, Western people who looked just like you and me, who had enacted some of the most horrifying things we'd ever seen. All around the world, people started to ask questions, started to probe, what does this say about humanity? How is this even possible that, that well-dressed, educated, mostly Christian, Western people, people who look just like you and me, who hold down jobs and have families, how could those people do that? Germany was not only mostly Christian and educated, they were leaders in the world of arts and sciences in theology. The leading theology schools, Christian theology schools of the world were in Germany at the time. And if you go back to the Nuremberg trials, those are the trials when they had all the war cr criminals of the Nazi regime, when they stood them up there and asked them, why did you do what you do, did? Do you know what their number one answer was? I was just following orders. So, meet Dr. Stanley Milgram of Yale. He had this question, how is it possible that millions of people would just go along with the torture and murder of people? How is it that you get an entire nation to just go along, to just follow orders? And so when he asked this question, if he could possibly understand what caused this, he might possibly understand how to avoid it in the future. So he started the experiment that we just saw. Connecticut, 1961. These are leave-it-to-beaver type people, right? 1961 sub Connecticut suburbs. This is where, you know, the mom is out there vacuuming with her pearls on. Dad is wearing his suit and hat. Yes, father, is what the children say. Like this is, this is, this is, this is quintessential good salt of the earth people. He goes there and he runs an ad in the newspaper that says, we will pay you four dollars for one hour of your time. We're conducting a memory experiment. So anyone who shows up will give you four dollars plus fifty cents for your for your car fare, which is this is this is a reasonable sum of money back then. So so up to five hundred people what we're taking first come first serve. Just sign up now. So when you when you do, you say, hey, this sounds good to me. You know what you do? You you show up at the research facility, and there you go. You're at Yale, very prestigious, respectable place. You show up and you go to this research facility, and then you sit in a waiting room. And there in the waiting room, you meet the other guy. Other guy who's going through the experiment with you. You guys strike up a conversation. He seems really nice. But what you don't know is that he's actually one of the researchers. He just tells you he's here for the experiment too. After a little while, a, a man, an expert, and a white lab coat comes in. And he explains to you what's going to take place. He's going to show you a picture. He's going, to, he's going to say, this is a memory experiment designed to test the impact of negative reinforcement through electrical shocks. If they help aid memory. So he's going to say, one of you needs to be the teacher and one of you needs to be the learner. So he has both of you pull, pull a slip of paper out of a box. What you don't know is that both those slips of paper actually say teacher on it. But you have to think that it could just have easily been you 
being the learner, okay? So one's a teacher, one's a learner. One's going to teach the other person this, these strings of, this string of words, and the other one's going to learn them. And so then he escorts you into the next room, and this is where the learner, the guy you just met, he seems really nice, he sits down in the chair, and they hook him up to these electrodes. And he explains, every time you get one wrong, you're going to get a, an electrical shock, and it will increase in measure as, as we go over time. And the learner is then scripted to say, listen to this, He's, this nice man sitting there, He's going to say, a few years ago in the veterans hospital, I was told that I had a bit of a heart condition. Will that be a problem? The expert's going to say, no. While the shocks may be painful, they are not dangerous. Just trust me with this. So then you and the expert then go into the adjoining room. So you're just around the corner. You, you can't see what's going on, but you can hear perfectly what's happening in the next room. And then... With the expert prompting you, actual picture here, you are then going to train the learner strings of memory words. And every time they make a mistake, you're supposed to flip a switch. With each switch, the voltage increases. Now, in reality, the guy next door, he's actually taken the thing off and they've set a recorder right there. And it's time so that every time you flip a switch, he presses the recorder that's going to make this sound. All you know, though, is that when you flip the first switch, he goes, Ugh. and then you go through the memory string. Next one he gets wrong, he goes, ow. And the next one he gets wrong, he starts to scream. And the next one he starts to shout. And then later he reminds you, I have a heart problem. And then finally, if you get up to over 240 volts, he starts screaming and banging on the wall. If you exceed 350 volts, it goes silent. The expert would lead you to electrocute that poor man until you reached a maximum of 450 volts. Now, if at any point someone says, no, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, you know what the expert is going to say to you? The experiment requires that you continue. So... If you actually went through with this experiment, it was designed to give you the distinct, distinct impression that you would actually either made that man pass out or die. All right. So here's the question Stanley Milgram wants to ask. How many of those people, those suburban people, those leave it to beaver people, father, how many of those people are going to be willing to keep pressing the switches? Maybe one out of a hundred Maybe two. Or, there's got to be some sadistic people out there, you know. And so the researchers sit back and they watch. One, and then one, and then one, and then one. And at the end of the day, they see that 65% of the people are willing to go to the maximum voltage if the expert just says, the experiment requires you to do so. They were just following orders. Milgram got a lot of negative feedback, as you might imagine, from this. One, the experiment itself is just horrific. And two, he exposed the inner Nazi and the vast majority of us. That with the proper conditions, we would be willing to just follow orders, that we would be willing to torture and potentially kill a stranger. Now, as terrible and as exposing and as uncomfortable and as just horrible as this was, this is actually not the point of the experiment, and this is not my point either. 
What happened next is, is, is that he said, okay, here's the reality that 65% of us will just follow orders, will just do what we're told, even if it means torture and murder. But how do you change that? How do you influence that outcome? Now that, that my friends, the fact that everyone's sinners, we already know that. But how do you influence that outcome? That is a good question. So he went through thousands and thousands of people and he found that there's one variable, one factor that completely changes the situation that will determine for good, better or for worse, will, will almost every time determine how you will behave in that scenario. That if you're put in this situation, you know what the one factor is that is going to decide whether you kill that person or whether you say, no, I will not. It's one more person. If you take one more person and set him next to him, and he's part of the research project, if he says, no, we should keep doing this, a random stranger says, no, we, we should do this, we should just do what we're told. If that person says that, 90% of the people will go to the maximum voltage. But if that person just quietly dissents and says, you know, I, I don't know about this. That's all you got to say. I don't know about this. 90% of the people would stop and say, this is not right. Now that is a difference. It's the difference that one person can make. And that's what Stanley Milgram found. Do you know what this means? Think about the implications for just a minute. If a complete stranger sitting next to you can influence you to either murder someone or have mercy on someone, what do you think the influences of people you know and trust and love. How much influence do you have over those that you share your life with? If a complete stranger can convince you to murder something, what kind of life-changing influence do you think we have over people? Today we're talking about relationships, and let me tell you, second only to a relationship with God, the people who are close to you, the people that you keep next to you, they will influence you second only to God in this life. The people you connect with in life, they're going to shape your very life, and you're going to shape theirs. Let me um, let me tell you about another bit of research that... that connects with this. There's, there's a great book that I mentioned last week called Switch. It's, it's not a Christian book. Just putting that out there. So don't go there for a devotional. It's a business book, a leadership book. It's called Switch, How to Change When Change is Hard. And there's these two research researchers. One's from Stanford. The other runs some huge business. And their research is primarily focused on how do people change? Okay? So in this, they, they, in this book, they give you all these data about how people's People change, but then there's this one line that I want to read to you. It says this. In this entire book, you might not find a single statement that is so rigorously supported by empirical research as this one. You are doing things because you see your peers doing them. How you behave is defined and shaped by the people who are next to you. And then they give us some examples. This is my favorite. He said, let's start with the mind-blowing finding. Obesity is contagious. Okay, so in Harvard, Harvard Medical School, they did this study of over 12,000 people over 32 years. And you know what they found? That if your good friend, if just close friends, close associates, someone that you spend time with, someone that you like, 
If they become obese, it triples your chances of becoming obese in the next two to five years. Some of you are like, I gotta choose different friends. <laughs> Just to tell you how, uh, how, how much influence this has, it has nothing to do with proximity. If your friend who lives in California that you talk to daily, if they become obese, it triples your chances of becoming obese. Nothing to do with proximity. And then they go into some of the other examples. Getting married is contagious. Getting divorced is contagious. Having babies is in the water. Income, fashion, voting, intelligence, flossing. And now we could add to this list murder and torture. It's contagious. These are all socially contagious, like empirical data tells us this. That, listen to this. You will shape who the people next to you, the people closest to you, you will shape who they are, how they behave, what they buy, what kind of language they use, how much they weigh, what they wear, where they live, and what TV shows they watch. You will affect the people next to you, whether they're obese or not, and whether they floss or not. You are immensely powerful. Now this, this factor that one person, the power of adding one person to a situation can change everything. This is something that business leaders and politicians and other academics and power people out there, they know this and they're trying to harness this. Businesses, you know where I found this? In a business book on how to make more money. Politicians know this. They're trying to harness this. How do we get legislation through? How do we, how do we consolidate power? But, but today we're going to use this same observation and we're going to ask some different questions because we're not about consolidating power or making money, are we? We're in the third week of a, a series called Shift, experiencing change from the inside out. And as I already said, the premise of this series and everything we do is that the gospel is the power of God that changes us and our world. So today we're going to look at how does the cross change the way I leverage my influence in other people's lives? How does the cross change the way I share my life and connect with other people so that they will choose mercy and not murder? So that their lives will reflect the glory of God so that our lives We'll honor our God. So we're going to go on a quick tour of, of the Bible. Today is really a theology lesson more than just a simple text. So I, I want you to follow along with me. Here's the big picture. We're talking about relationships. We're talking about God's plan. We're, we're going to unpack some of this stuff that Milgram said he discovered. He discovered it in the sense that he discovered it for academia. That if you go back thousands of years ago, God already said everything that Milgram already said in his word. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it's where we're going to start. God designed us to share our lives with others in such a way that our lives inextricably rub off on one another, inextricably affect one another. That when you have people speak to you and talk to you and sit next to you, it changes you, it influences you. And this is on purpose. Our lives are meant to be shared. People are meant to rub off on one another. Remember the first thing that's not good in all of creation? What is it? It is not good for man to be alone. Now, why is that? I know all of you are thinking, well, he'd never do his laundry. He'd never stop and ask for directions. 
He would never be able to find that thing in the cupboard that's right in front of his eyes, but he just can't find it. Maybe. But no, no, that's not why it's, that's not why it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man or mankind or humans at all to be alone because we are created to share our lives with one another. We're created to connect with one another. We are created to influence one another. The prime example of this is marriage. Um, in Genesis chapter 2, after he creates Adam and then Eve, they come together in marriage and God says, and the two will become one flesh. That this is, this is the prime example. This is the extraordinary, extreme end of, of sharing your lives, of connecting with one another. That, that God actually says there's not two people anymore. There's one shared life. Two persons, one life. Marriage. Now this happens, this is supposed to happen by design in all of our relations, relationships to varying degrees. So this is why if you go read through the Bible, you're going to find um, all those references to it's very, very important who you eat with. Because when you invite them to your table, you're inviting their influence into your life. This is why parents wisely say, young people, those who pray together, lay together. You know why? Because there are levels of spiritual connection, of intimacy that, that naturally connect, that lead together. That you need to be careful that there are relationships where you share yourself completely, marriage, and there are relationships where you don't. We are designed to share our very lives with one another, but this is not just the way God created things. This is actually part of, this is much bigger than just like, oh, God just made it that way, so we should do it. This is part of uncreated reality. This is part of who God is. This is part of the way reality itself, the foundation, the ground of all being. I, I don't want to lose you in phil philosophic mumbo-jumbo here, but I need you to hear this. This is really core, that this is not an optional thing, that sharing our lives, connecting our lives, deeply influencing one another is core to existence itself. So let, let's do this. Okay, everyone take a deep breath. <gasps> Okay, are you focused? You ready? If I'm going to lose you, I'm going to lose you in the next three minutes. So I need you to pay attention. The God of the Bible is triune. We believe in one God, one life, one being who exists in three persons, eternally distinct. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's not one, one person. It's three per people. Who share one life. It's one in three. So, let's unpack this for a minute. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They all share everything. All knowledge, all power, all love, all grace. All, they're in all places. They share their very life. That the Father loves and exalts the Son. That the Son loves and exalts the Father. That the Spirit loves and exalts with the Father and the Son. It is eternal. Eternal love and selflessness and joy and peace and beauty. This is our God. One God who exists in three persons. So when God says, that God says, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule. What does the image of God look like? Well, the text is going to tell us, it says, so God created man in his own image. 
in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I did this last year. You might remember there's this little thing that happens all over through the scriptures, through almost all the Psalms. It's everywhere. It's called Hebrew parallelism. Okay, here's your, your grammar lesson for the day. In Hebrew parallelism, those last two lines, notice that they're, they're parallel to one another. It, it's The second line usually does one of two things. It either completes the thought of the first line or it reinforces the first line, basically saying the same thing in a new way. Scholars think that this is the latter, that this is basically saying the same thing. It completes the thought, but it says it in a new way, the same thing. The image of God is in him. The image of God is in them. The image of God is not just in me individually. But it's seen especially and uniquely in us when we come together. That just as God himself says, I am one God who exists in three persons who share everything, who share life together. This is why marriage is so important. It's a reflection of who God is, that there's two people, but one life. That's who our God is. That's supposed to glorify and radiate and magnify our God. That when they love and they share everything, and there's the beauty and the joy and the peace and the selflessness of marriage is supposed to radiate God's glory on this earth. And all of our relationships are supposed to do that to one degree or another. That when people come together, distinct individuals, and they share love and selflessness in their very lives, we radiate God's goodness to the world. Listen to me. I'm not saying that individuals don't show the image of God. They do. But I am saying that if we want to more fully reflect the attributes of God's grace, his beauty, and his goodness. You need to add one more person to that equation. According to God's design, when we share our lives, like this picture I just showed about the way God shares his life, Father, Son, and Spirit. When we share our lives, it should be a reflection of God, and it should honestly be a taste of heaven. What Jesus talks about, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are reflecting God. We are tasting the pleasures of God, the joy of God, the love of God, the selflessness of God. Maybe this will ring true better for you. The great theologian Bruno Mars once said, Oh yeah, oh yeah, 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 oh. Because you make me feel like I've been locked out of heaven for too long. That's exactly right. That when a man and a woman come together in marital love, that it should not just be good, it should not just be pleasant, but it should be holy. That it should radiate the glory of God to the world. That it should make you feel like you've been locked out of heaven for too long. It should. Now, I don't know if that's what Bruno Mars meant, but I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. He's a great theologian, I'm sure. That when we come together... As friends, as co-workers, as neighbors, and we share in the love and the grace and the kindness, and we share our lives together, it should radiate God's goodness. The only problem with this is that 65% of the people you're going to share your life with would murder and torture you if someone in a white lab coat told them the experiment requires you to do so. 
put this in biblical terms, we are born with a sin nature, with the flesh. That there is a twisted, selfish bent to our souls. Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul describes it this way. People, all people, are sons of disobedience. By nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That we all have an inner Nazi. Of course, the, the clearest thing, description of this is uh, Romans 3.23. Part of, many of you have memorized this. What is it? For all have sinned and falling short of the glory of God. I want you to notice two things. First of all, that word all in Greek. If you do word studies, you know what it means? All. Everyone. So the second thing I want you to notice is that sinning is equated with falling short of the glory of God. That when we sin, we no longer radiate His goodness and His, His glory and His, and His presence. We no longer magnify Him. That when we come together and sin gets in the midst of our relationships, our relationships no longer reflect God. In fact, if you've ever loved anyone ever, then you know that sharing your life with others doesn't always feel like heaven, does it? In the words of the existentialist philosopher, generally grumpy Frenchman, Jean-Paul Sartre, hell is other people. Have you ever, in college I had to read his play, No Exit. Have you ever read it? Three Frenchmen die. Bad people. They all go to hell. And, uh, they're, they're envisioning, oh, it's gonna be like medieval torture chambers and there's gonna be little devils poking us. And you, you know what hell is? It's a nicely appointed room with three other Frenchmen and no exit. So his picture of hell is unredeemed relationship with other people. Now, Jean-Paul Sartre is nowhere near the theologian of Bruno Mars. So let me clarify this for you. Hell is not a nicely appointed room with three other Frenchmen, although that does sound pretty bad. The Bible is clear that hell is a real, whether it's a place or how, it, it's a reality. And it is separation from one another and separation from God. And it is awful. But he's right in the fact that you felt a bit of that, just as our relationship with one another should be a taste of heaven. Our relationship that are broken, that when a marriage fails, that when parents become abusive, that when children are estranged, when promises are broken, when you are objectified, when lust and envy and greed and selfishness get in the middle of your relationship, you can truly say, and I mean truly, biblically say, it hurts like hell. That the pain of separation from God and from one another is the pain that you're feeling. That it is a foretaste of eternal torment for those who do not know our God and are not redeemed to one another. If you've ever touched the top of a hot stove, you know you'll never do that again. And if you've ever been burnt in a relationship, you will never forget the pain. So the bad news is this. This is not something that we can just fix. That inner Nazi is not something that can be educated out of us. It's not like, oh, well, you need to read another marriage book and you need to go to niceness seminars and you need to go to anger management things and you need to have abuse education. We should do all of those things. And I promote all of those things. I really do. 
But that doesn't solve what's really wrong with us. In fact, you can't fix what's really wrong with you. And I can't either. That's the bad news. But the good news, the gospel of God, the gospel is the power of God that changes us and our world. The gospel is not that you have to succeed in all of your relationships. The gospel is that Jesus Christ already succeeded. The gospel is not that you have to fix everything. The gospel is that Jesus Christ already accomplished everything for you. On the cross, he took the pain of isolation, separation, abuse, brokenness that we deserved so that we could have the new relationship, not only with God, but with one another that he wanted to give us, that we're created for. So the Apostle Paul is actually going to talk about this. How do you apply the the gospel, what Jesus Christ, this act of selflessness and love and sharing that, that Jesus freely shared with all of us who were his enemies? How is that supposed to change us? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to say that should change the way everything that divides us in our relationships, race. Race is a big one. In that time, it was Jews and Gentiles. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. God only loves you if you're a Jew, right? Well, the Apostle Paul says, for he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace, who has made the two, Jew and Gentile, one. Ah, you heard that language before? And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The Apostle Paul just said that the race, that your religiosity, or whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, it doesn't matter when you come to the cross. That all of us become one in Christ. Galatians chapter 3. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. For all of you have been baptized into Christ. That means you've identified with Him. Have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. The race and gender and socioeconomic divides, all those things that separate us mean nothing at the foot of the cross. That when you believe the gospel, it's going to change every relationship. It's going to change how you treat your kids, your spouse, your parents, your co-workers. How you're going to relate to government. When you believe the gospel, when you believe that Jesus has forgiven me, you're able to forgive others. When you believe that Jesus has loved me, even when I did not love him, You're going to say, I can now love my spouse even when they don't love me. When you see that Jesus gave himself for me when I was his enemy, so I can give myself to my friends and my family even if they despise me. Jesus has always, always, always been faithful to me. He's never broken a promise ever and he never will. Even when I've been faithless. So I can be faithful to others, even when they're faithless to me. We no longer treat others according to how they respond to us. We live in response to what Christ accomplished for us. We no longer live in response to our past failures. We live in response to his 
ultimate and final victory on the cross. And the gospel changes every relationship we have. Because of the cross, I can share my life with you and experience this deep life of God, this self-giving that two people can share one life together. So the night before Jesus died on the cross, do you know what he prayed? He prayed that you and I, he prayed for us specifically, that you and I would be one as he and the Father are one. The way that he gives himself entirely in love, that he gives everything he has to the Father, and the Father shares everything he has with the Son, that they utterly share their lives together. Jesus prayed that we would share one life Very, very practically, how do we experience this? How do we apply this gospel to our relationships so that we can connect deeply the way Jesus prayed for us to do? And let me, let me, I have one application just as I have the last few times. The first sermon was the gospel is the power of God that changes us in our lives. The next one was we are changed by relationship. And this week I want you to hear one thing. If you want to experience the life of God, the depth of God, you have to add one more person. You need your one more person, at least. You should really add more. But one more person is going to be the difference of whether you become a murderer or merciful. But it's not just any person. If you want to experience real, deep, supernatural change, it's not enough to engage God personally. You need at least one other person, a person who's going to hold you accountable to live your life in light of the gospel. This is a phrase that you're going to hear all the time in our church. You need to connect in accountable relationships. You need to connect in accountable relationships. You need to connect in accountable relationships. All together, connect in accountable relationships. Okay, now... All of you said it, but you don't believe me right now. You know why? Because the word accountable has so much baggage. Accountable. Who wants to be accountable? I don't want to be accountable to anyone. In fact, if you, if you, most of you think of accountability, you think in terms of business. You think in terms of, um, or some of you in the Christian world, you've been in an accountability group. Oh, that's where we go sit around and we have to all go laundry list, confess all of our sins. And they say, bad, bad, bad. I tried that. Didn't work. Didn't help me. So I want to give you a new picture of accountability. This is it. You know what that is? It's a 1973 Plymouth. And it is beautiful, isn't it? Did you guys guys remember that? Okay, here's what I want you to picture right now. Picture this with me. Mom and Dad, it's Sunday afternoon. They just finished having pizza out in the foyer. Uh, They they walk out from church. 1973, Dad still has a a tab in his hand. You you know what a tab is? You kids, they used to serve this soda called Tab. It was pretty good. Anyways, he's got one of those glass bottles of Tab in his hand. Ma, she's she's got the baby in her arms. They go out to the car, and Mom says to Dad, You know what? This is such a beautiful day. This might be one of the, the most beautiful days of the fall. And then, who knows, it, it could be horrible from here on out. Let's go for a Sunday afternoon drive. And Dad says, you know, that's a great idea. So he slides into that vinyl seat. And she slides in next to him. And notice, there's nothing nothing between them. She's right next to him, holding a baby on her lap. And they hop in. Nobody even thinks to put a seatbelt on. Put it in drive. They're driving down the road. It's just a beautiful day. He finishes his tab and goes like, ah, throws it out the window. 
A couple minutes later, mom says to him, do you feel like a cigarette? I kind of do. Baby on her lap, she pulls out the cigarettes, both smoking like chimneys in the ashtray. Okay, so, and then after a nice drive, they all go home, and this is normal, right? This is healthy. This is what you do in 1973. You drive around with babies on your laps, no seatbelts on, smoking, chain smoking while you throw your trash out the window. That's what you do. Okay, now, this is obviously a dream because that's a very nice car. But imagine this is your car. We all have upgraded to BMWs. Church finishes up today. You go out there with your family. You have pizza. You go out to your car. Hop in your car. Just a normal day. You pull up to a red light. You turn over next to you, and in the turn lane, there's the scene from 1973 taking place right next to you. You see the windows up in the car. They're chain smoking. Baby on the lap. Chuck, you, you just saw him chuck, chuck a bottle out the window. What do you do? You're sitting there, and he smiles at you. You look over next to him. What do you do? I tell you what you should do. And you, if you're in here, this is what I expect you to do. You politely say, fall down your window. And then you politely explain to them that not wearing your seatbelt is just stupid. Chain smoking will kill you. It's just asinine. And doing it with a baby in the car is just disgusting. The fact that you threw your window out, you just made our world a lot worse place. You need to go pick that up, bub. And finally, if you don't pull over immediately and put that baby in a proper car seat, I'm going to call the cops. Thanks. <laughs> That's what you do. That's what you should do. Now, tell me, does anyone pay you to do that? Does anyone tell you this is what you have to do? This is how you have to behave? That you need to enforce that? No, because you so deeply hold those values. We value infants not becoming projectiles. We value our health. We value our, our community and what it looks like. We don't want trash everywhere. We so value these things that we self-police. We enforce them on our own. We, you don't have to tell someone that, to, to become a police officer. You just say, this is what we value. And that is accountability. When you become a Christian, it's more radical than jumping from 1973 to 2013. You and I, we move from one culture into another, from one kingdom into another, from one set of values into another. But I'm telling you, if you don't have at least one other person to challenge you, to agree with you when you're right, to say, I don't know about that when you're wrong, to encourage you, to tell you about those values, if you don't have at least one other person, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to accomplish anything else. And it's going to be very, very difficult for you to radiate the glory of God the way that we're created to. It is not good for man or woman or anyone to be alone. If you're brand new to GVF and you just heard me say that you should share your life with a bunch of people, that might sound a little intimidating, granted. So that's why I'm not talking about a bunch of people. I'm talking about one person. And your first step is not to just go find the next person that you run into and be like, <laughs> let me tell you everything about my life. Your first step is this. We have these things called connect groups. And the whole point of them is to connect you into the life of the church, to connect you with other people so that you can find your one, two, three people, that you can start that process. It is a process. A lot of you have been hurt deeply a lot of you, to compound things, have been hurt deeply at churches. You don't trust churches, and 
and you don't have reason to. We rebuild that trust one step at a time. And it's not, it starts with this. The gospel does not live in response to how other people treat you. The gospel lives in response to what Jesus Christ did for us. And only when we live that way can we start radiating the glory of God. Now, some of you are brand new. You just need to go to a connect group and then maybe, maybe then check out one of the small groups, check something a little bit deeper, a little bit more intense. Some of you have been here a long time and you have your one, two, three, five people that you share life with. You do life with them. You want to hear what your job is to do is to be the one other person that comes alongside these new people, these people who've been hurt and injured. It's your job to be the influence in their life. It's your job to say it's not okay in our kingdom to act like that. We're different people with different values. It's not okay to be like that. Here's what we truly value. We value sacrifice, servanthood, love, grace, generosity. I mean, this is who we are. And it's not okay if you break those things. We desperately need men and women who are going to dissent, even if it's quietly. They're going to be the one other person who's going to say, I don't know about this. That's not right. We desperately need people who are going to speak into other people's lives and say, this is what we value. This is who we are. We desperately need men and women who are going to promote the things that God loves. And they're going to speak against the things that God hates. Let's be that people.